Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Shelly Johnson, CEO and founder of Boltside Consulting. Welcome to The Mentor. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, hey, well, give us a bit of a background on you. So, uh, you know, you know, we know you're in the Boltside Consulting is in the HR game, but what's that all mean? Like HR, human resources, put us in a position. Yeah. So basically I work with leaders to build epic teams. That's my kind of zone or domain. And I think about, when you think about HR, actually, can I ask you a question, Mark? When you think about HR, what comes to mind for you? My head of HR and his whole department, how much money it cost me. <laughs> right? It costs a lot of money. The other side of HR that I think has uh, been notoriously bad has been this rule book kind of following where we create codes of conduct and policy and try and kind of keep everyone in line. And I think the world of HR needs to change. And so my mission, I guess, in that space is, how does HR really focus on building great leaders and standout teams? To found a HR business, what does it take in terms of, um, say, experience and maybe academic qualifications? It's kind of similar in some ways to accounting where there's associations you're part of, so like the Australian Human Resource Institute. But the thing that I think makes good HR people is the ability to deal with ambiguity and the ability to deal with complex people problems and any business owner, any of your listeners will know when you run a business, the thing is you get into the business just to make a difference and to serve customers. But as the business grows, all of a sudden you have to start putting on all these people and teams. And then your work transitions to being about the customer, being about what your clients, to being about solving people problems. And I think for HR, where we come in is how do we solve complex people problems and also then help you to build a high-performing team but that can be challenging when you're continually fighting fires with all these kind of complex people issues that leaders are dealing with. I did my master's in HR management. So that's been my background and worked in HR for the last 10 years in internal HR and bigger businesses. Organizational psychology is part of uh, some of the core subjects. The other thing is really looking at human behavior. How do, how do people, why are people the way they are, which is obviously a big, deep existential question. And then there's lots on entrepreneurship, on innovation and and what do modern workplaces need to thrive, which I think is something that we're experiencing at the moment where we're all of a sudden like, how do we upskill the workforce for the future when the future is so unknown? So there's some of those core things that you learn, but I think most of the learning happens on the job because 
people, I find myself saying, Mark, all the time, people are weird. Like we all do weird stuff. We have these weird dynamics. And so a lot of the learning happens on the job dealing with kind of messy problems. You mentioned behavioural. So, and there's a lot of science around that. When I think about people's behaviours, individuals' behaviours, we often think about people's predisposition to behave a certain way, you know, based on their genetics or equally based on their upbringing or their personal experiences. But probably more influential on how people behaviors, behave, I should say, is things they've experienced growing up that form and or shape their responses when they get older. As much as we'd like to say we're adults, we do still have a lot of responses based on how we got brought up as kids, what we got exposed to, what we saw, what our parents are like, what, how our parents experience going to work. Did our parents like the Labor Party, Liberal Party, Nationals? You know, did my dad work from sun up to sundown? I never saw him or my mum, et cetera. Were they were, was from a single parent family? And then, you know, like right now, we just, not right now, but we just gone through COVID and that's like an experiential thing that's sort of changed a lot of people's behaviours. Given that, there's so much conjecture about that. Like how do you deal with that shit? And uh how do you work out which is the right way? Because there's just debates raging left, right and centre about people's behaviours, not just in organisations but just generally. Yeah, it's a massive question and I think behavioural change is something that is really complex. Like how do we – and I think a big part of it, Mark, comes down to motivation. Like how do you motivate people to change? Because you're right, like so much of who we are is shaped by our – early life experiences, our family of origin, all these dynamics that we actually have no control over. But then we bring all these different personalities into a business and it becomes this melting pot of potential conflict of also heaps of great opportunities. But how do we as leaders and business owners leverage that to our advantage? And I sound like such a HR person saying leverage that to our advantage. But I think the big thing is understanding what are the behaviours that we tolerate and don't tolerate in our business. But is that based on our own ethics or what, what, what is that? Like let, let's say I'm running a coffee shop next door, um, we open at 5am, we get a lot of cyclists turn up at 5am and they're desperate for their coffee, they're big groups of them, they're important to me for my business. Um, they want a certain experience when they come in and you're and I'm hiring I don't know, someone to do the coffee, make the coffee, barista person, someone to take orders or deliver orders out to the table. But these people, let's say they're under 30, they're continually late and I'm stuck doing it all myself, trying to do it all myself and I'm losing money. This is a behaviour thing and it's, it's, you know, these people may think, well, I don't have to turn up on time. Mm. I can be a bit late because it's not my fault. The trains are late or the buses aren't running or – I mean, I had to move out because the rents are so high. That's not my problem. You have to wear that. I mean, I mean, me, the owner, my ethics are different to yours because, you know, I grew up in a different environment. How do we reconcile those mm. difference in ethics? Yeah, that's massive. I think the first thing we need to do is define, hey, what are the non-negotiable behaviours here at this cafe? And one of the things I would say, if this is you and you're a business owner and you're dealing with a conflict like this right now where you've got, staff who just slack off and they come 10 minutes late. They're not – yeah, but, and I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying they're slack. I don't want to make a judgment on them. I'm just saying you've got to be there when when everyone else turns up. My yeah. customers there, you've got to be there. Yeah. And I think it's about working out, hey, 
this is super important for our business success. And so one of our non-negotiable behaviors is start time is 10 minutes before the shift starts. Like let's get here 10 minutes early to get everything set up and ready. Of course, there's going to be times where something happens and you're late for whatever reason. But if there's a pattern of behavior that someone is consistently late. Outside of exceptions, yeah. 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 That's when we need to address those. And one of the things I think we struggle with or I've seen over over my time in HR is how do we have those tough conversations with people? And there might be ones like that that are like, you know, I think fairly simple, like someone's consistently late. But ones that are more challenging are we've got an employee and they're not showing initiative. They're just not driven. And it's like how do you motivate someone to be energetic or to – bring their sense of drive to work. And that's where we have to get to, okay, well, our culture here as a business, one of our core behaviors is drive. And we want people to have intrinsic motivation. We don't want to have to externally motivate them to do the core parts of their role. So we have to define that up front because then it helps us you to mean have- day one when you employ them. Yeah. Right. They need to know from the outset, hey, this is who we are. This is how we behave here. And if you want to join our team, this is what success looks like. And if we have that conversation up front, when you encounter issues, which inevitably you do, we then have to go back to that and say, hey, remember we had that conversation up front about the expectations and what behaviours are non-negotiable. I saw the other day you did X, Y, and Z. That really isn't aligned to who we are as a business and our culture. And so we need to talk about how we improve this. How, what do we do differently in future? And I think those conversations are conversations we need to have all the time, but the challenge is sometimes we feel nervous about, well, how do we how do we approach that with our staff member? How do I say this in a way that's not going to uh, demotivate them? How do I actually communicate this in a way that helps them grow? Totally different approach to the way I, you know, I experienced my early days of working. Um, in my early days of working, if you didn't do it, um, you weren't going to succeed. You just fall behind and Nobody would talk to you, you, but it was pretty obvious what was going on. Mm. Um, these days, though, you know, I don't want to use the word entitlement, but there is a sense of entitlement, a sense of I deserve this or a, a sense of that's not fair. Maybe it's better than entitlement. The word entitlement is probably the wrong word. And I know people keep referring to people under the age of 30 as having this sense of entitlement. Maybe, and I don't even know if it's a sense of dis- I deserve something. It's probably just, it's not fair. In other words, you only pay me for eight hours um, and I'm entitled. No, it's it's only fair that I have a break three times a day, mid-morning, lunchtime, mid-afternoon. And when I have that break, I'm going to take that whole break off because you're not going to pay me. You're not paying me for it. Um, how do you get around that? Because... I'm leading on to a, a point of productivity, but uh, which is a pretty important issue. But how do you as a HR consultant advise the owners of the business how to deal with that? Because that is a thing. It, that does exist. And it particularly exists in these days when the employees know that unemployment is so low mm-hmm. that they could just get up and get another job somewhere else. And so you're always under threat that – if you don't fucking do what I want, I'm getting, I'm out of here, and you'll be, and I won't even tell you. And uh, not only will you not have someone turn up until quarter past the hour, but you might not get anyone to turn up for a week because you can't employ another person. Absolutely, I think the point about unemployment is is a massive one because there's such low talent supply that 
there's this fear for business owners that if I uh, don't appease what this employee wants, then I'm potentially going to lose them. I don't have anyone to replace them. It could take me three months. Yeah, totally. To and and cost money too. Exactly. It's a huge cost. And I've got to invest in these people because even if I get three months, I've got to get them up to speed as well. I think what you're hitting on, this idea of, of entitlement or maybe uh, this sense of I deserve something before I've earned it, and that's my words, not yours, but I, I think that's a problem that leaders, I'm hearing from leaders around Australia of just how do we address this issue without losing people because I actually need this person in the job right now. And I think the thing, I had a, I had a leader call me the other day, Mark, and she, one of my clients, she was like, okay, I've employed this new person. They've been here three months and they've just sat down with me for their three months kind of review and we're chatting about the role and they've asked for a 10K pay rise and they've only been there for three months. And she's like, what do I do? Like, this is so entitled and how do I navigate this? And for me, I like to look at entitlement as an expectations problem, not an attitude problem. So it's a problem if I'm working for you, Mark, and I come in and I have been there for three months and say, Mark, I really need a 10K pay rise or I'm, I'm walking. That is a problem with my expectations as an employee. And so what the job of the business owner and the leader is to do is sit down with that person and say, hey, we, I think we've got misaligned expectations and we need to reset those. You mean when they ask? Yeah. So if they're asking for something you think, no. But isn't like, that too late though? Like, I mean, they're going to say, are they going to be disappointed? Yeah, but disappointment. I think disappointment's a part of the employment experience. We've got to navigate that. We've got to build that resilience in our workforce to go, hey, I, I think I this is what I really think, if I'm super honest. We need to just be really clear and upfront with, hey, if you want a pay rise, you have to do more than the basic fundamentals of the job. Like you have to go above and beyond. You have to show how you're performing and performing in that role well. And I also think as leaders, we need to set those expectations with our staff, again, from the beginning of employment where we say, hey, every year we'll review your pay once a year. doesn't mean you're guaranteed to, a, guaranteed to get a pay rise, but what it does mean is that we will have a conversation about your performance and pay every year and you can expect me to do some research externally as to what the market's paying for this role and we'll talk about how you're progressing but if we don't do that up front, we create ambiguity and then that's where we start to see some of these behaviours pop up of, well, hey, I'm just going to come and ask you for 10K, a 10K increase in the first three months. And I think those things are painful and annoying to deal with as a leader, but we have to get good at resetting some of those expectations. And we see, when we see entitlement as an expectations problem, it becomes easier to solve than when we see it as a mindset or attitude issue. So what about though the the other side of the coin though is the employee we might be able to do the research and you know know what the market price of a person with that particular talent blah 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 there's a whole series of things but that particular talent demands in a low unemployment environment but equally the person who we've employed has access these days to as much information as we do in fact getting hit up on LinkedIn perhaps um, mm. by somebody else saying to them, look, I'll pay 10 grand more because they're just desperate to get people. Their expectation may be properly based upon some research after three months. They might be saying, hang on, there's such a shortage of graphic designers um, 
in Australia that I'm getting hit up by left, right, and centre by on my LinkedIn and they're offering me 10 grand more. Now, I, I me, the employee, I might not have known that sort of stuff, you know, because do, am I supposed to be going into LinkedIn as well and looking at what people are offering other people? I mean, how, how do I get my head around this stuff? Because it's quite quite a difficult one. Um, it's I don't know if it's that as simple as an employer. I don't know if it's that, that simple that, you set the expectation. I agree with you. You got to set the expectations. What you want out of the performance? What their hours of work are? You know where where they add value to the business. Where you expect they add value to the business in relation to the amount of money you're paying them, etc. I get all that part. But they're doing the, their research all the time, and you never know whether they're actually coming in asking for ten grand because if you don't give them the ten grand, they're already about they accept about to accept an offer from somebody else. Mm. What do you do about that? Yeah, and. That, that's such a good point. It is really challenging. And I think if we do make an assumption that our employees are getting hit up on LinkedIn. Have to make that assumption. Yeah. Even if they're, even if they're not, you have to make that assumption. And it's a way to kind of go, okay, cool, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I look after my best people and I really um, make the environment a strong one that they want to be part of. We, we also have to think about so we want to do our market research. I think every six months you kind of need to look at how am I paying? What are, where are my salaries at? And also where do you want to be paying? Because some businesses choose to pay at the high end of the market. And so that's right. You've got percentiles. So yeah. So like, yeah, that, that, and I, I was coming to that point too. That, that's a really important point, Shelley. So when you said before, I do a market research or a market appraisal of your wage every six months or 12 months, whatever the case may be, I mean, I actually think there's an expectation six months these days, but anyway, um, and I do an appraisal. I got to look at you and sort of work out whether you're in the top twenty-five percent percentile or in the bottom twenty-five percent percentile percentile, and the difference between wages could be, you know, any any huge twenty-five amount. grand yeah, more, yeah, totally. Um, how do I work out that? How do I work out whether or not you're in the top twenty-five percent percentile? 25 percentile. Yeah, how do I work that out? I mean, what the fuck does that mean? 25 percentile. Like, <laughs> yes. you know, like especially if I'm running a cafe. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you work it out? I think you've got to think about what does what would it cost me to lose this person? And how much value are they adding to the business? You use the word value. I think we really need to think about that all the time. And I, I like to look at, okay, well, if this person left would I need multiple people to replace them? Because sometimes you have these star star players who are like in there and they could do the job of like two, three people. And we have to be looking at those people going, okay, I need to do everything I can to retain them. I need to make sure that I'm looking after them. So you, you would look at paying them the high end of the market, the top end, versus someone who's come in and they're fairly green, they're inexperienced. Well, you take them on a journey to develop and grow them and you might start them at the lower end of what the salary market is. And over time, as you see them progress, you do kind of reviews. And so you're working with them and you communicate, hey, you're in the early part of your career, the, here's the, here are the growth gaps for you. Here are the things that I'm not seeing that I'd love to see. And you take them on that journey and and even spell out, this is what the salary range is for this role. The highest end might be, you know, 90K for this particular role. The low end is 60. And we work, work up through once you hit these milestones, this is how we progress. And they know then from the outset, okay, cool, here's what I have to be doing to work my way up. And so I like to have the salary range really clear from the outset of employment again, and I keep saying that, 
so that again, it's all it's all upfront and transparent. And I think when it comes to pay, there's been a lot of um, you know secrecy around that. We're seeing that shift slightly now with the pay transparency laws. But spelling it out from the beginning means that you can stop some of those issues bubbling up where you get those sense of entitlement and and constant requests for pay reviews. And the other thing, Mark, I think is when we think about our salary and we think about who's competing, who are we competing with externally, employees aren't just looking for money. Like I know right now we're in a really tough climate, so I, I should preface this by saying we're in a difficult market right now with inflation and so cost of living going up has made it really challenging. There's this great research by McCrindle that they did on work wellbeing and they talk heaps about how growth, career progression and growth and great leadership are some of the main things that employees are looking for. So we need to think about what is the, what is the whole experience we're trying to create here? Money is one part of it. Like making sure our salaries are, are right is important. But what is the culture we want to create? What is the leadership dynamic that we build? And how does that also add to this employee's experience? Because when they're getting messages on LinkedIn from recruiters, they're not just weighing up the $10,000 of extra money they get. They're going to be thinking, well, what's that culture like? What is that leader that I'm going to be working for like? And that can be a real unique selling point for employees. Is there like a a list of variables that you can assess an employee on? Because we do this with football players, roosters. We we look at a player's ability to sustain a 10-year period. You know, based on injuries and all sorts of things, not just attitude, but injuries, et cetera, and skills. But is there such a thing for ranking for employees and the business as well? Because you made a really good point. LinkedIn sends a note to someone who says, I've got a job here, but the job's in Melbourne. So they live in Sydney. They'd have to get up and move to Melbourne. They don't want to do that, even though there was 10 grand extra. Or LinkedIn says, oh, the job's in the um, in Maroubra. And it's really hard to get to Maroubra from Smithfield and a person might say, no, it's not my go. So can employers look at some ranking system, both for the people they have and for the jobs that they offer? Yeah, definitely. I love that idea of what you're doing with the roosters of having that ranking system. These are the core things. Well, there's software available for this. And we just, we just use software. We've got a license to use the software. And it's so, it's, it's, there's so much we can learn from sports, sporting teams and apply to our teams in business that I think we're not doing. And I I love that idea. I think we could come up with a system where we look at a couple of measures. So their skills, their qualifications. Now people are more qualified now than ever. So to me, qualifications are, they're kind of the baseline. I don't see, you could have- It might be one of the 10 though. Yeah, that's right. You might just tick it off just say, yeah, um, competent. Yeah. And they can, these are the core fundamentals of the job and they can, de- they demonstrate those. So you yep. could have like a scorecard almost to go, okay. But when I was a GE, General Electric, globally, we had a scorecard for every single employee and wow. we used to have to assess everybody once a year and you got a score out of five. And unless you're on the top, I think you're, unless you're above three, you're on, your head was on the chopping block and you knew that day one. And there was a big scorecard. It was like a, quite a, big exercise. I mean, I was a chairman of the business, but people used, I used to see these things get fed up to me through the various leaders in the business in relation to all the employees. So we did it once a year. And it's really interesting, that dynamic of 
Was that under Jack Welch? Jack, no, yeah. well, Jack had already that, that no, Jack had already gone, but that was Jack's system. It was part of the G system. Yeah, it was the bottom. The temp, bottom ten percent always got fired. Is how how was that? Just out of it curiosity, worked. It, worked. it worked. No one wanted to be in the bottom ten percent. Yeah, and uh, that means the top ten percent were outperforming all the time. There was a little bit of upward management. Um, people were always upward upward managing their direct report. So, in other words, if I did a budget, I was would always give you lower numbers, you'd have to stretch me, but I would always put in lower numbers so they would always meet expectations. So upward management was a big deal. Um, everybody would manage the manager. Um, it's a, I didn't like that that much, but that, no, that, that did happen. So you didn't fall in the bottom 10%. But like, by the way, if you weren't smart enough to upward manage your report, direct report, then you probably should be in the bottom 10%. Unless you're so cocky that you're so bloody good at what you're doing, you didn't give a shit. And in which case you'd never be in the bottom 10%. But it worked. Always, and by the way, that wasn't reducing the workforce because you're always employing another 10% too. And and it was just continued recruitment and upward pressure from your recruits to everybody who was above them. Yeah, wow. Is, was there a fear-driven culture? No, no, no. It was fear of losing, being in the bottom 10%. But no one wanted to be, no one wanted to be in the bottom 10%. But by the way, you know, it's a slightly different sort of environment because people wanted to work for General Electric because they wanted to have it on their CV. They didn't stay long, most mostly. They'd go there for a few years, maybe four or five years, you know, do the Six Sigma course, um, try to become a black belt in Six Sigma um, and then be able to put on the CV. I worked at General Electric. I worked in this division, aviation, finance, whatever it is, you know, whatever it was, um, and I got to this level. And if you survive five years, you're pretty good. Then you take that CV and you get a job somewhere else, much mm. more money. Right. G never paid well. So that's interesting that, and I think that speaks to pay is not the only draw card. Like if you've got a good reputation brand, a good employee experience, you develop really strong caliber of people. Pay doesn't need to be the sole value proposition to employees. You can have all these other things. Like we grow and develop talent. Like I think if we apply the sporting lens to this like, and think about Penrith right now, one of the things that Penrith Panthers have done really well is talent development and they've had a really solid talent development program for years. And if we think about as business owners, do we have a solid talent development program that people want to come and be a part of? Can we get, take green people, newbies and develop them? We might get them for five years, but it, it's more cost effective and we're building that talent pipeline and we're thinking about our team from not just our team right now. We're thinking about five years from now, what are the skills that I need? What are the qualifications? What, are the, what is the talent that I'm going to need in the future to take this team forward? And how do I start planning for it now? Yeah, I, I would say one thing because I, I'm on one of the boards of one of the big clubs. I've been 20 years now. But I would say this though, um, it is good, it's a good system, but it doesn't work in business because uh, football clubs don't make money. Um, they're sponsored and uh, they break even at best. Um, they're there to put on entertainment and uh, you can take a five-year view or a 10-year view mm -hmm. or a long-term view because you're really there just to break even. You're, you're a community thing, you know, like you've got really got no shareholders, you've got stakeholders with no shareholders. Pretty much all the money you make goes to the players and the coaching staff and what you hope is that minus a few overheads you can at least break even or can lean on the – the Lees Club to give you a grant, um, but that's and that. But so that 
that model doesn't work in business because businesses have got to make money mm. for the shareholders. Yes. And, uh, you know, clubs don't have shareholders. So I, I'm not, I don't think we can go that far. It is, it's a, it's a clever model for attracting the best talent and building it. But a lot of times we don't have time to build the talent in mm. business. I mean, if I go back to my coffee shop guy, like he's standing there, mate, he's probably making the food, um, you know, taking orders are coming in. He's collecting orders, not only like deliveries are coming in. He's trying to put that on. He's in a, he's, in, he's working in a shoebox. Um, he's been there since four thirty in the morning. He probably doesn't finish till late in the afternoon. He has to then he has to clean up everywhere and goes. How does that person uh, develop talent? Um, like they're working seven days a week too. They don't have time time off. I mean, you're consulting to big corporations, but a lot of small business owners are listening to this and they're thinking, well, I can't do that. I mean, they can't do what I do at Yellow Brick Road. I've got a whole HR department because we've got hundreds of thousands of people work for us. So that makes sense. But what about if we just go along and look at the typical small business owner? It can be maybe they've got 10 employees, say, max. But the founder's working in the business and working as hard, probably harder than everybody else. How do we take that talent identification and talent development into those environments? Yeah. I think we can do it really simply. And you make it's such a good point that when we're in a small business, it's a very different dynamic. And as an owner, you're working your ass off. Like, and so there's that time constraint. So how can I how can I invest time here? So I'm I'm so glad you said that. I I think the big thing that we it's a simple thing, but it has a big impact is really regular check-ins. So it might be 15 minutes. And if you're working for me, Mark, I would, and I'm running a business, got 10 people, I'd be saying once a week, you and I just catch up for 15 minutes. Hey, So you do that 15 minutes by 10 people. Yeah, and just really quick. It could even just be 10 minutes. It doesn't necessarily need to be scheduled, but it's one-on-one time is something that especially younger employees, they really want. So they really want that from their boss. Why do they want that? I don't understand because like, if I, I mean, sorry for my ignorance, but if I got ten employees and I'm doing fifty minutes, that's 150 minutes a week. That's uh, like a couple of hours, um, more than a couple of hours. Um, I'm thinking to myself, time's precious to me. It's one of my my one of my least commodities. Mm-hmm. I'm spending 14 hours a day on my business, and I've, I've got a family at home, <laughs> wife and a couple of kids, or whatever partner, a couple of kids, a kid. Um, I don't have the time. I mean, what, what do I do? Like, yeah. hell, man. I, I, like, I, I, and then you sit down with somebody and, they, and you start saying, how are you going? How are you feeling <laughs> about everything? You know? How's the public transport situation for you? I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, I mean, what are you – let's assume I have got the time, right? But I, I, I would dispute 10 is – in a 10 environment, that's pretty hard to do. Um, but in maybe two environments, two, two staff members, maybe it's possible. But say this 10 might be a bit, bit difficult. But even if I assume I did have the ability to allocate the time, um, how do I then allocate time to my family? And then what do I talk to them about? When do I, so I sit down with you, Shelley, and I'm saying, let's have a chat. What do I say to you? What, what, am, I, what am I asking you here? Yeah, so a couple of things. I think ask how you're traveling. Number what does that mean, though? Hey, because if you ask me how I'm traveling, I say, "What do you mean? How I'm traveling? Like, how do you mean how I'm traveling? Like, how are you going? How are you going in the job? What, in the job? Yeah. So, how are you doing in the job? What do you expect from them to say? Oh, no, I'm a, I'm not happy in my personal life. I mean, what, what is it like? 
what are you going to hear from them? So I think we get a pulse check of how they're going in their role, but also how they're feeling about are, are there any things in the business that they need to raise with me? Like are there any things that they're finding challenging about the job? And it's more just like a check-in. Like, And it, it doesn't have to be long. Usually, But what happens if they extend it? What happens if they say, well, glad you asked, um, and the next thing you know you're sitting there for an hour? Yeah, uh, well, what, and that uh, is the risk, right? So we need to be clear on the time of going, These, this is just a really punchy like quick check-in of going, okay, Mark, how's things what are the uh, big challenges at the moment? Are there anything? Is there any roadblocks in the role? So let's say one of the challenges are is we're not getting through the orders quick enough in the morning, and we've got a long line and people are leaving. So I, as a business owner, need to know that because so that's, is, that's my checking. That I'm checking my ideas in with them, though, as opposed. So it's not really me checking how they're feeling. It's both. It's got to be both because I think. What what we need, if I think about how much time a business owner is spending dealing with putting out fires with their people, they're spending a lot of time on that. Whereas this, these check-in processes are designed to mean that you're not spending time putting out fires, that you're getting ahead of the curve. So you get ahead of the curve by quickly doing those check-ins with employees. And the other benefit, so Marcus Buckingham, uh, he's done some amazing research on the power of 15-minute check-ins to increase performance and engagement. So it's one of these things that it's a proactive thing that stops us from having to have all these time sinks with performance issues of us not addressing them early enough. We we get to see how does this employee think, how do they behave, and to me 15 minutes a week with 10 people is less time than what we're spending addressing underperformance on teams when things blow up. So all of a sudden, if we have a, a significant performance issue that has been going on for three months that no one has told you and then it gets to a critical point, all of a sudden your whole week's gone trying to fix this employee issue. So for me, that 15-minute check-in is, is a small time investment that saves you a lot of time on the back end. It sounds ideal. I just don't know. Like uh, maybe I'm an old codger just being resistant to this sort of stuff. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. lot of economic analytics um, and I talked to a lot of economists around the country and one of the big issues now with the inflation numbers that could get thrown around the place although I, I disagree with the way the inflation is currently being calculated by the Reserve Bank I mean I have a different view on it it should be forward looking as opposed to backward looking but it doesn't matter um, they're stuck with what they've got 
Um, but one of the big issues is that the RBA keeps raise, raising is this issue that wages are increasing. Um, a lot of it is government-induced, the Reserve Bank saying this. Um, and, of course, the government's got a different argument. They're saying people deserve a wage rise, be that as may. I don't want to enter into that argument. But one thing that is clear economically is that productivity in Australia is that as an all, productivity in Australia at business level is at an all-time low. It's the lowest it's ever been in our history or since we've been taking records. Productivity per person. So the argument goes that if I put this person's salary up or if I put everyone in my business's salary up, then my unit cost, because my productivity has dropped, in other words, the number of coffees I produce has dropped um, or has stayed the same, hasn't increased, but I put my cost up per cup of coffee, wage cost up per cup of coffee, therefore my unit cost has increased. The only way forward for me as a business owner is I've got to charge more for the coffee. To the, I, make the, I will make the consumer pay. And that's that causes, that's inflationary. So have you got any insights into how we can increase productivity? I mean, for me, I think COVID created a new culture of lower productivity because you know, all of us as employers la- allowed our employees to stay home because they couldn't come to work anyway in most, in most circumstances. Um, we let them stay home. Uh, we tried to keep on top of it electronically as to their productivity by, you know, watching them open their laptop and giving them tasks and, you know, increase the, the at a manager level, increase the manager's productivity actually because they had to have more meetings with people and had to speak to them more and every single morning they had to check in every single afternoon, they had to check in and all that sort of stuff. But I think, do you th- well, I'll ask you, do you think there's been a, a cultural change in how hard we work Um relative to productivity, therefore, is potentially a problem when it comes to what the Reserve Bank's now talking about. Yeah. Do you think COVID did that to us? I mean, the three-day, two-day, or that whole argument, you know, working yeah. from home three days, coming to the office two days, or vice versa, or should we now, everyone's got to come, come in five days. You know, I, I see Musk saying it. I mean, a lot of the big um, tech companies are saying five days is now the, the deal. Commonwealth Bank's come out and said it. You've got to come in, you've got to be in the office minimum, 50% minimum. Um, and I have this argument with my HR department all the time. For me, they should be in office every day. It, it, I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be the same as it was pre-COVID because COVID's over. So what do you think about that whole environment? Productivity, come in the office, et cetera. It's such a big question and I'm really glad that you raised the work from home, work from the office dynamic. I think it's a huge debate, right? And I have... I'd love to um, talk about that and it could get like spicy, but I- Well, bring it on. Let's talk. And I <laughs> let's say, because do I it. think it's important. <laughs> totally. And I love that you're like, yeah, my HR department are, and uh, having this conversation at the moment. I love work from home and I love in person. You personally like to yeah, work from home. I look personally. Like, so if I just take this and I don't know that I have the knowledge to speak on uh, productivity as a whole. I'm not an economist. I don't really understand the fullness of that. I do think that- we have seen areas where performance has dropped. I also think that where, from what I know from working with leaders and, and business owners has been, I don't think we're very good at setting performance metrics for our team members. I, I think some people are, but I, I think they're, and this is a, this could be a generalization, but I think they're the, the outlier. I think we don't like the conversation of 
I need you to achieve X, Y, and Z, and I have a stretch goal for you, and I want to see you grow, and so we need to lift performance in these areas. I just don't know that we're having. Well, we don't do that because unemployment's so low. We're scared they're going to leave. Exactly, exactly. It's it's really funny you say that. I I was running a leadership workshop the other week, and I asked them, "What problems are you tolerating in this business?" And they're like, "Oh, we've got underperformance everywhere, but we're so afraid to lose the the body. We'd rather have a body instead of no body." Mm. And so the fear, and I think that's developed, that's caused a habit in our ability to performance manage people because all of a sudden we're so afraid to lose people, even if they're underperforming. And what that does, Mark, is it lowers the benchmark for performance across the whole team. Because if we tolerate this person over here who's just barely scraping by doing the bare minimum, what that says to everyone else is, well, just lower the standards like, and you'll, you'll be sweet. And I think we lose high performers by doing that because high performers are like, wait, no, I want to be a part of a team that really is kicking goals and you're tolerating this person over here who's either toxic or they've got terrible behaviours or they just can't do the job. So what does that say about me? Like I want to work part, as part of a team. That's so true. what do you suggest? Get rid of them. I th- I think we need to have more performance conversations. And I know you, you, I saw this on your Instagram the other day. Brutal honesty is better than sugar-coated bullshit. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, I think that's true. I think there's a, another option that might be more useful, which is how do we have truth and kindness conversations with our staff? So we sit down and we go, this is not the standard. You're not actually meeting the standard. I need to see you lift and here's why. And how many times you do that? Way more than we're doing right now. No, but how many times you you have a conversation with the, the the staff member? Let's say it doesn't change. Do you have it? When do you have, do you have it again, or what happens? Yeah, so we have to have action. It can't just be this circle where we have these circular conversations and no improvement gets made. So we have to have, okay, here's what's not working. Here's when I need you to improve by, and what I need you to do, and then. I need to see this by this date. Otherwise, we're going to have to have further chats about what action has to get taken. So is it, do you make that a warning? Yeah, it could be a warning or it could be like, hey, we're going to do this plan of let's get you from A to B and if you can't meet that, then we're going to have to talk about what the right option is for you, whether that's here or someone, somewhere else. Why, why, why? I mean, I'm looking at your age and I guess you're much younger <laughs> than me, but uh, why do you think we have – has? Yeah, have we gone too far? Like, like we're shepherding these individuals. It's nearly like we're parenting them, uh, based on that the, the, the language you just used. Is that a thing, or or is it or is it um, is it sort of age group uh, related, like cohort mm. related? Where, where's that coming from? Because I think if unemployment was six seven percent, as opposed to three and a half. You wouldn't have to have those conversations. Yeah. People would wake up pretty bloody fast. Um, but it's not six to seven percent, it's yeah, much lower. So it's I think there's been a power shift. Mm. Um, and the power shift has gone to the employees. And but that'll shift the other way. That it always things things move around all the time. Prior to that, by the way, was probably too much of having the employer as well. But COVID has pushed it right down the other end and uh back to the employee. And it's like the employees sort of taking advantage of it because most people, not most people, a lot of people aren't the way you just said, I want to be part of a you know, winning culture, blah, blah, blah. There's an equal amount of people who just say, I just, I'm just i just happy to turn up and get my job and get my pay because I can give a shit about the joint. You know, mm. like, uh, and you're right. 
the people who want to be winners look at these people and all of a sudden the d- common denominator, they select, you choose, the business selects the lowest common denominator. And everyone says, well, if she or he's not going to do this, well, they, uh, I'm just going to work whatever and just I'm going to lower my performance down to that level. And all of a sudden you get underperformance and you get l- less productivity and as a result of less pro- productivity, you end up having, you know, the so-called the inflation thing now that we've got now. And as a result of the inflation thing, we've got high interest rates and the people end up paying for this low productivity are the poor mortgage holder. So, you know, some family out wherever, you know, who's paying their mortgage diligently, work hard, he's a plumber or, you know, works his butt off, is paying for, this is a terrible thing, but low productivity. That is the truth because inflation right now, the reason the interest rates went up in the last interest rate rise was because of the um, dysfunction of unit cost of Australian businesses. And the dysfunction of unit cost is a result of low productivity in Australia, but higher wages. And the person who has to pay for it now is the borrower. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense to me. It's the most stupid system uh, of adjustment that I've ever seen in my life. And by the way, no one's talking about it. The, the treasurer's not talking about it. The prime minister's not talking about it. You know, the the governor of the RBA sort of makes mention of it, but he doesn't want to get political. So, and commentators have, have chosen, you know, newspapers, TV, have chosen not to talk about it. Don't know why. It's a bit of a left versus right type thing going on. Um, you know, and the major red papers are not not right. They're left. Um what do you think about this? I mean, because this is a big issue. This is a bloody big issue. Um, and I got a feeling, I'm sorry to interrupt because I'm not talking to you, but I, I got a feeling, to be honest with you, that the RBA government sees this and I think he knows that this is a problem and I think he's going to push us into recession and I think he's going to push us into recession so he can push un- unemployment up and teach everyone a lesson. And I reckon his view is I'm going to get inflate, uh, unemployment from three and a half to maybe five. People aren't going to be able to think, well, shit, I can get a job anywhere I want. All of a sudden, all these hit-ups you're getting on LinkedIn are going to drop away. People are going to be going to be put on their metal as to their performance and maybe productivity will increase, will, be, will go up as opposed to go backwards. That's my gut feeling. I reckon he wants to shock the economy wow. and shock our mentality because this has all come out of COVID. You know, like, and, 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 I, and I'm seeing signs with, you know, some very influential leaders around the world saying, the work from home thing doesn't work. It might, it might work for you in your environment because you're running your own business. That makes sense. But like if you work for a corporation, then they're paying rent for the whole floor and electricity to light the whole floor up because you can't light up that section when no one's sitting and light up that section where everyone else is. You've got to light the whole floor up. You've got to do your power costs, your rental costs. You've got to provide a desk just in case someone does turn up. You got to have a, 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 a either a laptop or a PC for that particular individual. You got to have a system that can uh, a cloud system that can take all the data. Blah. There's just a million overheads, fixed overheads. You got to have no matter what. And I think that employers and or leaders are starting to say, "Wait a minute, this is all bullshit." Like senior people in the organisation go every day of the week. If you're working, if you're running a HR department at a on a, one of the big FMCG uh, places you as the leader of the department would be in at work every day or at least four days. You wouldn't be able to work at home because you've got to, go to monitor everybody. You've got to actually interact. What do you think? Am I, am I going too crazy here? I, I think you're speaking to the complexity of what we're dealing with right now. It's 
bloody complex and we're in this mess. And so I think I here I was a rant. Sorry about that. But I don't... love I love a good rant. <laughs> but I think one of the things where with so a couple of things there. When you said you've got to go in to monitor people, I think if a leader's job is purely monitoring. No, but not just monitoring. Interact. Interact. Talk to them. How are you going today? You know, like what's doing? Like how am I going to have, if I'm the leader, how am I going to have my 15-minute conversation? I think we can do the remote. I Yeah, but what about if I don't, if, if it's better that I, I can see your reaction? Like if I'm on a telephone, yeah. or is it, I reckon that Zoom stuff's way overcooked. I mean, the moment you get off Zoom, you just you zone out, you go back to what you were doing before. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, if I have a conversation with you now, I can't do this over Zoom as, well, I, as powerfully as I can in front in person because I can see your hands, I can see your movement, I yeah. can see what you're doing. And then when this is over, I can then say, oh, blah, 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 I thought about this. When a Zoom call is finished, if a Zoom call is finished. Yeah, you don't get any of those other chats, you right? Know, nothing else happens after because you might have a second thought, a third thought, ten more thoughts. You might have it at three hours later. I just need to – I forgot to say this to you in the conversation we just had. I just remembered it in those after lunch, you know, whatever. You know, I, I just think we've, they've taken away a lot of the power of being in the same environment. There's a lot of power in that. There is power in being in person, 100%. Those moments where we get together in real life, you cannot substitute that. You just can't. You can't. You can't. I, I run all my leadership workshops, cultural workshops in person yep. because there's nothing better than sitting in a room with people in real life. And we need that. The, the flip side, the thing that work from home has done that I think has been an advantage is so in-person gives us connection and work from home gives us margin. And I think what important- What's that mean? So space in our schedule. So if you think about what the last, you know, 10 years have looked like, the rise of dual income working families and that parents of families have had a 10-hour commute at a minimum on top of their 40-hour work week, when we take that commute away, we create margin for families, which increases well-being, increases mental health. Now, that should correlate with increased performance. But it hasn't. But it hasn't. And so we need to ask, okay, well, why? Is it purely getting people back to the office that's the that's the differentiator? Because I'm not sold on that. Well, then what is it? Because productivity is at an all-time low. So what is it in this country? I don't know about other countries, but... If people have got now got an extra 10 hours a week on that example, which makes sense, you know, who wants to sit on a train or a bus or whatever it is for, you know, 10 hours a week? Nobody. In fact, some people seem more so. But why haven't we seen that reflect in better productivity across the board? And I reckon we should commission some research into it and go, what is it that's changed? I'd love to ask you because I think I was reading this article the other day, I don't know where it was from. Uh, it might have been, it was around that my generation, it might have been in AFR, my generation, so millennials and Gen Zs have not lived through a difficult, really, really difficult financial period. So what, I'm, what I'm suggesting is what the Reserve Bank's going to do. So do you think that the reason productivity or performance is low is because we haven't had to, had those experiences where you really have to work super hard for something like I'd love to know your thoughts because I feel like you've got more life experience than me what could it what are you what do you pin it to well I remember was, look I mean maybe I'm not a good proxy for this but when I remember when I first started working in my 20s and 30s particularly my 20s um the culture was be thankful you got a job always be on time in fact be always be early be prepared to work late don't expect any more money for it um, you get a pay rise only if you deserve it. 
uh, maybe once a year. And at best, you, you should expect a CPI or inflation, whatever that was, like a small percentage rise. Um, and you earn your rights. You don't walk into the office in those days. You don't have any rights. You're, you're, you earn your rights. You earn your stripes. And we're always worried that we were going to lose our job. And if you lose your job, you you feel stupid, like the loss of face, big time. If you look, if you got you went home to your parents or your friends that I got sacked, that was a big deal. Now they don't care. I don't think people care. There's not there's not that much writing on it. Um, and they all, people also know they can get a job anywhere because there's such low unemployment. And the reason it's low unemployment is because the government threw so much money at our economy worried that people were going to lose their jobs, that actual factor went the other way. They overspent and our unemployment number went from 4.5% to 3.5% or 3.4% at one stage. And, you know, even our, our Reserve Bank, when he, when unemployment was at 4.5%, he said he was saying, I'd like to see uh, unemployment at 3.5%. Now it's at 3.5%. He's, like, he's saying, I'd like to go back to 4.5%. He's worked out that's an error. And the error has created low productivity and high inflation as a result of it. And as I said, there's a small part of the society that's actually going to pay for it. And that's people with mortgages. And they're the very people, usually the very people who can't afford to pay for it, you know, because they've got kids and house and dreams and, you know, they, 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 they're usually not spenders anyway because they've got, already got a mortgage. <laughs> so so if to answer your question, I don't know the reason why people are behaving that way today in terms of low productivity, notwithstanding they've got more hours under the belt because of working from home. I don't know what's going on. The question has to be something to do with attitude. Yes. It has to be. It's it's who they think they are, who they what they think their obligations are. It's maybe, you know, how hard do I think I have to work? I just need to get this, this amount of work out. And a lot of stuff's admin today. A lot of it's computer-based. Mm. You know, like uh, you, it's very hard to analyse how effective you are. You can just say, oh, well, that thing took me a lot longer to write. Yeah. If there was some issues. I, I think you, you made a good point about the care. Like, I think you said care factor. And one of the warning signs I see on teams is when there's apathy, like just that sense of, bare minimum. And I don't know if you saw it the other day, there was that big article that came out in news.com about bare minimum Mondays where a business yeah. was saying, just come in and do the bare minimum. And to me, that's so counter what we want our teams to be doing. Like if we want a high performing team, they're not doing the bare minimum. They're doing above and beyond. They're showing all this initiative and drive. So if we have, if we look for signs of apathy, sometimes the thing we can do to change that is first we've got to talk about it. I've got to address it. But we need to look at, okay, how do we connect people with our mission? What is our purpose as a business and how do I connect people with that? How do I find people that really align and get it and build this, hey, this is we're on a mission to do this and we need you to be fully engaged and and energized by that mission and, and with us on that journey. Well, let's go back to the coffee shop. What's your mission though? Well, give me a, an example of a mission. So a coffee shop that I know, I'm from Newcastle, one of their mission is is purely to do the best cup of coffee in the shortest amount of time. And for me as the consumer, I'm like, I go there because I know I get my coffee in like 60 seconds. It's like amazing. And I'm out the door. And so that's their thing that they have that all their staff know that, all their staff deliver. Like it's it's amazing. 
have open operates like a machine. It's so good and it's the best coffee. And I think we need to figure out what's that for us? Like what's our purpose? Why do we exist? How do we make sure we find stuff that align with that? Now we might only have those stuff, those team members for 12 months, but if we can connect them with that purpose, that mission, and then go, cool, we make sure they align. We make sure they've got that drive and energy behind it. And we don't tolerate apathy. We don't tolerate that low performance. And I think it's better sometimes to be down a staff member than to have those people. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, because because the founders get brain damage thinking about it. Like uh, there's nothing worse. There's, not, there's nothing worse than being distracted and thinking about that sort of thing. Um, what you do is very complex. What you try to address is very complex. And I don't know if there is an answer for these things. I mean, I, I, I just think these things just evolve and find an answer for themselves. But there's definitely a need for HR specialists to come in and try and unravel this for busy people in their environments. Um, but it's it's ever-evolving and it is it sort of bounces around the joint a little bit and it's probably extraordinarily difficult to get your hands around it to sort of try and wrestle this thing to the ground and try and work out what the real problem is. And you can put in a lot of fundamentals and rudimentary stuff to, you know, manage things and manage expectations and, as you said, the check-ins and all those sorts of things, but it's going to be a rough ride. I reckon we're in for a rough ride. I reckon we're in for a rough ride about people's expectations, what a business got to deliver to them. I think we're in a rough ride for what businesses expect from the employees. I think we're in a rough ride in terms of um, – I think we're in for a shock and some employees are going to be in for a shock when unemployment changes. It will, it will change. I think we're going to be in for a shock um, just economically generally. Um, I think our economists are going to have to start to review um, their measures mm. because we are now measuring things based on a system that was has been going for 100 years. Um, maybe our measurements are wrong. You know, maybe we shouldn't be measuring productivity the way we used to measure it in relative to inflation. You know, maybe that's we should be looking at something totally new, um, and maybe we have to be take accept that we're going to be stuck with lower productivity. Maybe we have to accept that people are going to work two, three days from home because, they, as you say, they want to have that margin in their life, that extra time. It, 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 maybe we can't change it back because the horse might have already bolted, um, and we just kind of accept in this country at least that people are going to work from home, no matter what you what you do or say. And um, you know, you might be want to be an outlier, but it may not, maybe you just won't get any employees. You know, mm. or get the right employees or good employees. It's sort of a very complicated. I wouldn't call it a mess, but governments around the world, I I think, didn't manage COVID very well. And I don't mean the health issue. I mean all the ancillary stuff that came off what they did by locking us, making us stay at home and all the money they threw at the system. If I put money in a young person's pocket and they don't earn it, they didn't earn it, they didn't sweat to get it and stress to get it, they're going to do the obvious thing, going to spend it, and they won't value it either. Nobody will. Mm. You just don't value it because you didn't earn it. It's normal, and uh, I don't blame them for it. It's just normal behaviour, and governments did that. Governments just flooded us with money. You know, you can stay on... Uh, work from home, get paid. Stay home. Don't work. You don't work. What the hell was that? Like uh, <laughs> it was don't work and job get paid. <laughs> uh, you can keep your job, but stay home, and you're going to get seven hundred fifty. One stage was twelve fifty a week. Like 
they went on for ages. Like, what the hell is that? Like, no one ever thought it through. Um, you know, like, and people can say, well, I, I want to keep doing that. I, I, that. I like that. I like staying home. I didn't have to spend any money. I, I could go on holidays. I saved money. Uh, I moved out of the city where I used to have to live because I had to go to work close to the city, but I now move out so it's cheaper. I got a house. I got, you know, five of my mates live in there. I was banking dough. That, that, that created a massive cultural shift. And uh, so I don't know if we're going to solve that one. And uh, there's going to be plenty of room for people like you because, you know, consultants like yourself, because it's going to be massively confronting over time for employers and, and they need someone to come and map this shit out. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's back to what you said before. It's I do think it's a mindset and attitude thing that we're dealing with. And you have to reverse it. How do you, re- yeah. you – that's why I said it right at the beginning. How the do we – Psychologists <laughs> and behavioural science the, – the science of people's behaviour is very complex. Mm. And and even it's biological as well as genetic. It's biological as well as well as, well as being uh, environmental. Mm. And who knows what the right mix is or the mix or any it might, mix might change every particular individual and every individual's environment is different anyway. So it's so complicated. You might have to do it on a, a one-by-one basis mm. and uh, there's no one-size-fits-all. There's no one solution. No. But there are, there's a really good book that I'd recommend for your listeners uh, and many of them will have read it, Mindset by Carol Dweck, and it talks about how do you develop a growth mindset with people. And if you want to start somewhere and, and help your employees move from this apathy stage into a growth mindset, that's the go because I think that concept of how do we build people who have a growth mindset, who want to grow, who want to improve, who want to develop and and work hard and have this grit to me, read that book. It's amazing. It'll really help to start to see how do I shift this stuff with my team. It's very interesting, Aloka, trying to shift shift people's mindset and we're sort of playing God a little bit like why should they even have that mindset? That's what they would say because it's not my business. They say this is not my business. I don't own it. I don't have to make a profit. Uh, I just have to do my job. Um, it's a very interesting position that we find ourselves in today as employers and equally it's a very interesting position employees find themselves in. Mm. Somewhere in the middle it's got to meet and generally speaking I find catastrophes build more willingness to resolve issues and we haven't seen a catastrophe for a long time and I'm talking about economic catastrophes, you know, drama and all of a sudden people say, shit, hang on, let's get together and resolve this. And I think that is sort of where our Reserve Bank is going. I think they're mm-hmm. thinking, let's create a problem. Let's yeah. break something. And they'll, that way everybody will, the fundamentals will get back to some sort of normalisation. Not the way it used to be, but some sort of normalisation. But we'll see. I I just know that people definitely need people like you um, in, in your business, you know, like uh, as a HR consulting, bold side, I like bold side consulting because you, you come across as pretty bold. Um, <laughs> so, And you've got to be bold yeah. with this and you've got to make mistakes and businesses are going to be are going to make mistakes too, as are, as will employees. Not only are you an expert in the area in terms of um, your career, but you actually have a podcast on this topic too. What's, it called? What's the podcast called? My Millennial Career. Yeah, and so what does My Millennial Career do? Well, it's my millennial career is to help employees navigate the workforce. Employees, so, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. doing the reverse of training to help employees just navigate the workforce, navigate their career. And you've done a book as well. 
what was the book called and, and what's the purpose of the book? What's the objective? The book's called Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money. And so we really help looking at how do employees build a career that they love and what are the things that employers love and how do you build a career that gets you more opportunities but also helps you grow and develop and step into leadership roles. So it's really around that. Hopefully employees being able to then learn how to advance their position. Exactly. As opposed to just the amount of money they're going to earn. Because if you advance your position, you're going to get paid more money, generally speaking. Totally. It yeah. normally follows. One follows the other. Yeah. It doesn't happen in reverse. But it's a complex area, man. Like uh, I've never, I've been in business for 50 years nearly employing people and uh, this is the most complex I've ever seen it in terms of the relationship between us and employees. Wow. Shelley Johnson, thanks very much. Thanks, Mark. It's been awesome. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast.